The America's Quarterly Podcast is sponsored by The Boeing Company. One area that's getting a lot of attention in Latin America these days is hydrogen, which is a key element in producing sustainable fuels. Boeing has spent recent years developing technology to increase the use of green hydrogen in fuel cells and in combustion engines on its airplanes, as the company pursues a goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Benjamin Russell, in this week for Brian Winter. Colombians will elect a new president in 2022, and it might be Gustavo Petro's race to lose. The senator and former mayor of Bogotá is polling well ahead of the first-round election on May 29th. What concessions might the one-time member of the M19 guerrilla group be willing to make to bring more moderate voters to his side? The truth of the matter is that he's not a radical thinker and he's not a radical reformer. When he was mayor of Bogotá, he was not very good at doing big changes. But what he did very thoroughly was he was a good politician. Primary elections on March 13th, in which Colombians selected candidates from coalitions representing the left, right, and center of the political spectrum, left Gustavo Petro as an early frontrunner in this year's presidential race. A CNC poll conducted for Semana magazine after the primaries gave him 32% of the vote, a full nine percentage points ahead of his nearest rival, Federico Gutierrez. But 32% is not a majority and would not be enough to avoid a runoff where Petro may have a hard time winning over skeptics. Meanwhile, Gutierrez, whose commanding performance in conservative coalition primaries came to something of a surprise, is surging in polls. And familiar faces like Sergio Fajardo and Ingrid Betancourt, or newcomers like Rodolfo Hernandez, could yet play spoiler or sneak into the second round themselves. Whatever the result, the campaign has underlined the ideological divides of a changing Colombia, where 85% of the population says the country is moving in the wrong direction, according to an Ipsos poll, and protests beginning in 2019 have seen demonstrators call for action on a wide variety of long-standing issues, from corruption and inequality to a lack of economic opportunities and police brutality. Here to help make sense of what this race means for Colombia and offer an unvarnished look at how the frontrunners might govern is Miguel Silva, who aside from a long career as a lawyer, journalist, and communications consultant, is the founder of Galileo 6, a strategic communications, political, and crisis management firm based in Bogotá. Miguel, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Benjamin. Pleased to be with you. Uh, so I'd like to start by briefly getting your sense of the current shape of the race. Uh, given recent polling, given the outcome of the primaries, are we headed toward a repeat of 2018 in the sense of a left-right runoff? And how have political circumstances in Colombia changed since 2018? Well, thank you. I think it's a fascinating moment. Uh, in 2018, our issues were, you know, peace process, yes, peace process, no, and how to move forward or how to move backwards. And it was a, a left against right uh, scenario. I think we're in a different situation now. Uh, first of all, of course, the COVID-19 crisis and uh, extreme poverty going uh, south. Uh, Four million Colombians went into poverty during this crisis. We are, I remind you, 50 million people. A lot has to be said on how the government managed the crisis and it has recovered economically. But there's still, you know, a lot of pain 
in the Colombian society and anger. Uh, and that should help uh, the um, more anti-establishment uh, candidate. It is hard to call him leftist. Petro is more a populist than a leftist in strict terms. Now, in uh, March 13, the media said, you know, he was the big uh, victor of the primaries. I don't see it that way, hmm. uh, Benjamin. I think that he, you know, he, he got 4.5 million votes in the first round in 18 and 8.3 million votes in the second round in 2018. And he got 4.5 million votes again. He needs 11 million votes to win in the first round. He won't get that. And he needs 11 million votes again to win in the, in the second round. And it's hard for him to get it. He, he gathering the troops uh, enough to beat whoever is his adversary, either Fajardo from the center or Federico from the right, is going to be hard. So I, I, I don't think Petro is the obvious president. It's going to be a very difficult race for him. You've alluded to the difficulty for Petro in winning this race if he's unable to garner support from the center-left. Talk to me about his selection of Francia Marquez as his running mate in that context. Marquez is a prize-winning environmentalist. She's Afro-Colombian. She earned more than 700,000 votes in the primaries herself. But after she was announced as Petro's running mate, she made some disparaging comments about former President Cesar Gaviria, who is the spokesperson for the Liberal Party, a party whose support would presumably be very important for the Petro campaign. And this led to a break in talks between the party and, and Petro's camp. So Marquez doesn't seem to be the most logical pick if you're trying to earn more moderate support in the center and center left. What does she bring Petro in electoral terms? Well, it's interesting. Francia, I respect Francia a lot. I mean, and I know her. Uh, she's she's uh, as a social leader. She is to be respected. I mean, she's an amazing woman. As a presidential candidate, I don't think she understands that in a two-round system, you need to build a coalition. Even if you look at Congress, the left has 46% of Congress. The right has 54% of Congress. But even those big numbers add very small numbers. Petro has 19 senators. Then somebody else has five, the FARC. And then somebody else has for the uh, uh, Greens, and then somebody else has, you, you see, so it, right. they, they will have to add up, even if, if Erico is president, he's going to need to build a coalition of right center to right wing parties. But we have a two round system. If you're going to win in the first round with 51%, that's fine. You don't need anyone. But he's not. He needs the center. And I think that what Francia did to his campaign was harmful. And they know it. They know they're grieving now. Now, why choose Francia? Why couldn't he outreach? Because his, his base was fragmented and in trouble already. He had, he had already starting to outreach. And people in the left were angry. Our, our left has a tradition of fighting for power before they take power. Where the right, I mean, those guys are very organized. <laughs> they, they don't fight uh, because they, 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 they want power. Right, and they get power, and then they fight. So I think that also it's a big political issue. I mean, this is the first Afro-Colombian woman that takes eight hundred or seven hundred thousand votes. It's a, it's a huge, massive voting statement. How can you not uh, choose her? Mm. But then again, I think if I were the advisor, I would say, look, the left has nowhere to go. They will follow you wherever you go. You know, you can do a, build an alliance with Uribe if you want. They, they have nowhere to go. So move to the center. Choose 
a woman, an Afro-Colombian if you want, but not from your side, choose her from the center. But, you know, it, it was a hard choice. And I think he did what he could do. Sure. Let's talk about, assuming he is the front runner and assuming he remains, so let's talk about what he might do as president before shifting to some of the other potential candidates. Gustavo Petro has floated a tax reform. He's floated changes to a kind of labyrinthine public and private pension system. He's floated the end to new oil exploration. How radical are these proposals? How necessary are they given, you know, structural challenges in, in terms of pensions and taxes and stagnation and social mobility uh, that led to some of the protests we've seen over the last three years? And then finally, how, how possible are they? I mean, specifically in the case of oil, given that, you know, somewhere around half of Colombian exports are in hydrocarbons. Well, you know, I think you have to listen to these things as campaign statements, environmentally related campaign statements to un- petrosize his campaign and environmentalize his campaign, right? The truth of the matter is that he's not a radical thinker and he's not a radical reformer. He's more an incompetent populist. When he was mayor of Bogota, he was not very good at doing big changes. The only big change that he did and was unfortunate was the private contract that there was for garbage disposal. He decided that the waterworks public company would take over that and that was a disaster. But what he did, what he did very thoroughly was he was a good politician. And, you know, his adversaries were very incompetent. When you have someone like this and you take him to, you know, we're going to revoke your mandate. What you're doing is you're taking him from his position of incompetence, which is management, to his position of competence, which is politics. And that's what he did. He defended himself. And when you do polling, when you do focus groups, you know, people say, if you say, Petr did nothing as mayor. I mean, he was, a, he was embarrassing. And they will say, yeah, of course, they didn't let him. So he victimizes himself very fast. I, I fear that we would have a president that would very soon victimize himself to, you know, become an eternal politician, more or less like Lopez Obrador is doing. Now, the other way to see Petr is he's, he's not stupid. He could go the Lula way. Lula, when he got his first mandate, he appointed Palosi as Minister of Finance, who sent a signal to the market, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. Mucha calma, right? Mm -hmm. I think Petro will do the same. He needs to build a coalition with the center. He cannot just go and do crazy things about oil. He might be, you know, adversary to foreign investment in oil in Colombia. But the truth of the matter is that Ecopetrol is already 85% of our oil. So our oil is already pretty public. Now, would you stop Ecopetrol from uh, oil production? You can't, because then you won't have money to do anything. So he won't. He'll probably take Ecopetrol, say, like, remember, British Petroleum became beyond petroleum? Sure. I think you're know, going to a rhetoric that we're going to completely change Ecopetrol to, you know, different sources of energy. Great. They're already doing it. Uh, I want to pause on a couple of things you mentioned. One of them is this idea that Petro, as mayor, was simply not allowed to do what he would have liked to do. Uh, you know, on one hand, there is this skepticism and even fear of the left in Colombia that has had a direct negative effect on Petro while he was in office. He was actually removed as mayor over the changes to trash collection that you mentioned, which I think even some fervent critics would acknowledge was a, a real overreaction 
to perhaps a bad piece of public policy. On the other hand, earlier this month, he told Blue Radio that uh, his first act as president would be to implement a state of emergency to respond to hunger in the country, raising fears in some quarters that what he really wants to do is rule by decree. Now, to be fair, Hungary is a very urgent issue in Colombia. Some 16 million people in the country go on two meals or less per day. Uh, that's according to the Colombian Association of Food Banks. And Petro has said that the state of emergency would apply only uh, on this narrow issue. But what do you make of this idea that Petro may be willing to work outside normal democratic or political constraints? If he's unable to push forward with his agenda in what we've we've already mentioned is a, a very divided Congress. Well, to start with, I think that Petro's social initiatives, the language of the social initiatives, not themselves, but the whole language and the whole language of inequity, inequality, injustice and poverty in Colombia is healthy for us. There's a need for the private sector. There's a need on the side of the wealthier, there's a need on the side of, you know, the technocrats and the economists that have, you know, dealt with the Colombian economy for years to understand that we need to get creative on this one and that, um, you know, the usual formula is not working. And you could say that of the U.S. and you could say that of many countries. We've done okay in the last 30 years, but we're way behind on, you know, inequality and social issues. And the COVID-19 didn't help. So I think that's healthy, and it's healthy for a campaign to be dealing with those issues. People see Petro as, you know, if, if he gets into power, this would be Venezuela, and then he would stay in power forever. I don't see how. I don't think he would even try, but he, he might try. But, I mean, Chavez, Chavez had the army, uh, which is the biggest political party in Venezuela and has been forever. He was extremely popular. He had majority. He closed Congress. He, he had a bunch of things in his favor. You know, Petro doesn't have, you know, a majority in Congress. He needs to build that. So I don't think he's going to be a, a radical. I, again, my problem with him is that he's not very competent. But, you know, hopefully he will, he will gather a good team and, and be good in governing. Yeah. Now, could he try to push a referendum to get the election passed and then blah, 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 and move towards? Yes, he could. But this is a, this is a tough country. Even Uribe, who had such amazing support and the right wing and many of the very wealthy in this country wanted him to stay. And he couldn't. <laughs> he couldn't. The Constitutional Court said, no, you can't. Go home. In that vein, do you think that this very fractured Congress that you've already mentioned and the constitutional courts would be an effective check on anything more drastic that he might be trying to pursue? Yes. Yes, I do think so. I, 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 Congress is easier for a president to, you know, manage. People, you know, skeptics here will say, oh, come on, Congress, you buy out Congress. Yeah, but I don't think that you buy out Congress. You need to build a coalition, which is different than buying. He has 18 senators, but if you add the left, those who would approve, for example, of pension reform are about 30. You could, you know, move in some directions on more radical agendas. Now, very radical agendas? I don't know. I don't think so. As you know, governments, particularly in Colombia, you, you know, you're inaugurated into office and the next day you have a huge crisis that is whatever. Escobar escaped prison or, mm -hmm. you know, the FARC decided that they're going to do a nuclear attack against Cali or I don't know. This is crazy. So he, he'll need to govern. 
But again, I think it's gonna. It's not an easy thing for him to win, not in the first round and not in the second round. Yeah. Well, on that on that note, I mean, in, in February, Federico Fico Gutierrez uh, was polling around four percent. I think in the March 13th primaries, he went on to get you know more than two million votes, and then in the, that CNC poll from after the primaries, he's around twenty three percent, kind of firmly in second place. Uh, how do you explain that? rise that uh over these last couple of months well what, what happened was that everything was very unclear from the center center left which is the side that i come from those guys were five guys uh, you know fighting for the candidacy so no one had five percent right. this is where Sergio Fajardo, where Fajardo, Fajardo and Alejandro Gaviria, Juan Manuel Galana, those guys were. And of course, nobody had more than eight or 10 or, you know, because they were sharing a 30% of the pie. But when you liberate one of them, Fajardo, who got a weak uh, vote, and they're a weak uh, group right now, but th they could grow up to 30% if they do things well, because that oil field has 30% of the oil reserves, right? <laughs> if they do well, they can get that. Federico, who won those primaries with the help of Uribe's party. Uribe's party had a candidate who was not running in those primaries. And of course, he was dead the next day and he supported Federico this before they would. Oscar Zuluaga. Oscar Iván, yeah. Before the party would sell him in the market for nothing on Tuesday, he surrendered on Monday. You could say that's hurtful for Federico because that Uribe sizes him. But if you're going to do something as bad as that, you better do it early. And then move to the center. Sure. Like the Francia support, right? You got to do that, do it now, and then move to the center. So he is now moving to the center. The point here is the right wing has 25% of the oil reserve. Let, let's talk about oil fields, right? There are three oil fields. Left has 25% of an oil field, no matter what. Petro owns that, no matter what. He could kill someone in the street. He'll have 25 25% is owned by Uribe. There is no crossover between those two oil fields. No votes. If this one loses votes, the other one will not get them. That's Uribe's 25%. And then the center has 50% of the oil reserves, but that's completely atomized and fragmented. And so if you have Federico, Federico now has 20-something. That's the whole right wing uh, and center to right. And now he's going to move to a center to get 30, 35 Petro has already 30. If he gets a little bit of the center, he'll get 35. And then Fajardo can move from, you know, 10, 15 to 20, 25, perhaps 30. Two problems. One is Ingrid Betancur is still in the race, and she takes from Fajardo. Now, they both contain Petro's advance to the center. That's the first comment. And then the second comment is there's a crazy Trumpian candidate called Rodolfo Hernandez, who takes away from the anti-establishment vote that could bring Petro to win in the first round. Can he grow up again? I don't know. All of those who did not go to a consulta in February were massacred in the polls. This is Petro Cor, Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, Suluaga. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, trying to find the space between uh, the two winners of, of the other primaries, aside from Gustavo Petro on March 13th, and that's Sergio Fajardo and... Uh, Federico Gutierrez, both former mayors of Medellin, both kind of have a similar look. In terms of public policy, in terms of their platforms, where's the biggest slice of daylight between those two? How do they differ? 
It's a good question. I, well, Fajardo is an educator, and he's very big on social issues and education. And I think he would be also an interesting president culturally. He speaks on, you know, a nonviolent approach to politics, a non-polarizing society, a, you know, a unifying uh, drive, a common purpose. I think it would be a healthier choice for a badly broken society. But you and I know what happens uh, with, with those guys in the center. It's very hard for the center to get across with a strong message because social media amplifies the extremists. Now, differences with Federico. I think Federico, you wouldn't be able to say what he's about completely. Mm. He's too early in the race. He has said not much. He is stronger than anyone else on citizen security, and that's a big issue in Colombia. He is a tough guy. He was a tough mayor. He would patrol the streets with the police, which is very attractive to the right-wing voter, his security uh, message. But you cannot say that he's a hardliner and just an extremist because he's not. You know, he's a guy. He's a guy from a middle-class family, common guy. He understands social issues. So I think he also could become an interesting social program president. I don't see someone like Federico being very involved in foreign policy, as uh, I think Fajardo would and Petro would mm. on completely different geopolitical systems, right? That's right. Petro would be on the side of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, where his you know sympathies lie. Fajardo would be probably asking the same questions that everybody's asking since you know, 20 years ago. Should we be completely aligned with the U.S. or should we be more Eurocentric or what the hell should we be doing? Our alliance with the U.S. is a strange alliance. Now, you know, they're talking with Maduro again and it's always strange because we're like the guy in the, the, the prodigal son of the Bible <laughs> in our alliance with the U.S., Uh, so I think that Fajardo would be on that thing. Federico, I don't think he would mind. He would have someone deal with that. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Um, can we talk a, a second about Rodolfo Hernandez? I mean, is the, the frustration that appears to be driving his candidacy, is that, is that something new for Colombia? Is this something that's been building over a long period of time? I don't know if it's new, and, but, but it is a different type of candidate for Colombian standards. This is a guy who's unknown. He's rich. Trump is an intellectual <laughs> in comparison with Rodolfo. Rodolfo is simpler than Trump, much simpler. He just speaks his, his mind out. Yeah, you know, for example, they ask him, what's your first task as president? He says, you know, I'm going to get all the buyers of uh, stuff that the government buys, all the, all the sellers, all the suppliers, and I'm going to get a list, and I'm going to decide, and I'm going to write the checks. And that, because, I, because I'm rich, I'm not going to steal anything. So that will solve all of the problems of the treasury. <laughs> and that will happen in 10 days. It's not only that he's doing campaigning. He believes that. He's a very simple guy. So he is a new phenomenon for Colombia. And, and he's a good candidate because he doesn't give a damn. There's no script. He does whatever. He dresses like Santa Claus and walks in Bucaramanga. He does TikTok and he's, he's great in social media. So I wouldn't think that he has disappeared. And, and remember, if Federico doesn't grow to 30%, and if Fajardo grows to 20-something percent, then you might have Petro with 35 and three guys with 20-something. 
I don't think that's going to happen, but it could happen. Right, and then you're in a second round where kind of all bets are off, I think. Yeah, you could have Hernandez against Petro. Petro would lose. You could have Fico versus Petro. I think if Fico de-uribicizes himself properly, Fico will win. And if it's Fajardo Petro, Fajardo will win because the right has nowhere to go. All right, I'll get you out on this. You know, you talked about kind of the hurt and the, the pain in Colombian society and the kind of clamoring for change. Are you optimistic that Colombians will get kind of some of the change or some of the improvement that they're looking for under the next president? Yes, yes, I am optimistic. I mean, this country is amazing. When you look at what we've lived in the last 40 years and how we have dealt with, you know, social innovation, even how we have elected mayors from the left and the far left and advanced on social policies successfully with a lot of political peace in the cities. I mean, if you look at Bogota, Medellin and Cali today, they're governed by uh, leftist mayors uh, and there is no political violence in those cities in those terms. There's, there's other issues social protests and all that. So I am optimistic. I think that this country has uh, recovered from the COVID-19 crisis and has recovered its path of growth. It has a strong private sector that's pretty strong committed with the country. You know, some of them are scared of someone like Petro, but I don't think that no one in the relevant and big private sector would just abandon the country on August 9th. Right. I mean, people, people will keep on working. And I think that we also understand we've been through, through much. We've been through a very, very, very tough civil war. I mean, or armed conflict or however you want to call it. Some people hate those two words, but it was a civil war. We had six million internally displaced people. We were the second country after Sudan with internally displaced uh, people. We had 75% of the kidnappings in the world in 1995. We've been through a lot. This country has a good, good resilience. And I think that if, if we don't do crazy things, this country can do from the moderate left or even decisive left to the moderate right and do well. I think that this country doesn't do well when we have the extreme right because it, it just exacerbates violence and hatred, uh, racism and classism and elitism. And when we have the extreme left, which is also resentful and full of hatred, whatever happens in this election, I don't think we're in those scenarios at all. So I think we're, you know, we're blessed. Miguel, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for your time. Uh, it's been great. Thank you, Benjamin. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is produced in partnership with Human Group Media. Our producers are Benjamin Russell and Fernanda Uriegas. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.